Thank you so much. Uh, good evening to all. I mean, good morning to all of you. I, I just flew over from Guam yesterday, so I guess my time uh, is a little bit uh, still squeegee. Um, this morning, I, what I want to do is first let you know about the Guam Clinic, and uh, if, you, if we have any OBGYNs here in, in our midst, we can use two of you right now in Guam. So if, if, you, if you just got convicted, come and see me. Okay, uh, Guam uh, Clinic, by the way, is, um, we have an excellent administrator, Coke Lin. Coke uh, had been an administrator for the Kaiser Permanente uh, facility in Riverside for 30 years. Uh, and when he retired, when I heard he was retiring, I immediately flew over and, and begged him to come over to Guam. So he's with, with us in Guam. Uh, doing an excellent job. The clinic is really uh, taking, moving in the right direction. A lot of opportunities there. Uh, we're hoping to build a new clinic uh, pretty soon, um, add to that. So we're hoping to put a, uh, a uh, assisted living in there. We're hoping to put a, uh, a uh, surgery center. We're hoping that we can have a skilled nursing unit as well as the regular clinic and the eye clinic and the dental clinic. And so we're looking forward to uh, seeing how the Lord uh, leads in that. We do have the funds to build a church right now and a health education center attached to it, so uh, we're moving ahead this coming year in uh, doing that. So please pray for us, and uh, we believe that there are great things yet to come in Guam, Micronesia. And if you're interested in doing relief work, by all means, uh, contact us. Uh, we have some, some uh, materials here. Madeline is the lady that you can talk to. She is at the booth of Guam uh, booth. For those of you who know about Mission College and uh, thought that uh, it, it uh, had its last uh, heart attack, in reality, it's still well and alive. Uh, the, the difference is that presently we are having the students uh, get the training in Guam because we're holding an evangelistic meeting coming next week. Uh, we have Jeff Yulden from Australia who will be doing the evangelistic meeting. We have 25 students there right now that we're training. We have a lot of Bible, Bible studies going on, and uh, right at the university, we have a campus ministry that's uh, going on as well, and it's just exciting to see what God is doing. We have a lot of, uh, uh, the academy is, uh, really has grown and uh, doing well, and so all in all, things are going well in Micronesia, for those of you who have been there before. I know that perhaps is good news for you, and uh, so keep praying for us as we continue to develop there. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to have you pray with me as we consider the subject. Our Father, as we study together, we pray that you'll guide us and that you'll lead us as we consider these matters. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen. Now, first of all, I'd like to make a disclaimer, if that's permissible, and that is I'm not a neural scientist. Uh, I do have a friend who is. His name is uh, Harry Jan Harry Kabunkle. He is a neuroscientist in the uh, teaching at the university in Switzerland, in Lausanne. And uh, a lot of the material that I have, I've been communicating with him, just to make sure that I have all my T's crossed and all my I's dotted. Um, I wanted to do this because uh, it's important for us to, to know uh, how it is that people make decisions. You know, all the time uh, we're wondering whether or not we should be in the place of helping people make decisions. And many times we wonder if we know how to do it, or what do you do? And I have to say that most of the time health uh, care professionals are quite leery in getting into the spiritual side of things, uh, simply because of ramifications, uh, legalities, etc. Uh, but there's a lot of science to it, and as we study together, perhaps we can uh, look at uh, what science says concerning the decision-making process. First of all, in the magazine Science, um, a, uh, am I standing in your way? Can you see over here? Okay. In the magazine Science, uh, decision-making, the, there's a, an article there uh, in refer reference to this particular subject. And it was quite interesting to me as I uh, looked through it and studied it. 
because it, uh, recently there's a lot of research going on in terms of decision making. Uh, of course, you know that most industries that sell uh, invest a lot in trying to figure out how to lead people to a decision. Madison Avenue spends millions of dollars. I have a friend, for example, who, who uh, makes mega bucks making uh, an uh, advertisement for, for uh, companies who want to sell junk. Uh, he, that's what he told me. He says uh, they'll give him something that, uh, that a mouse wouldn't buy, but it's his job to figure out how to get the mouse to buy it. And so he will put an ad together, and pretty soon not only mice are buying it, but people are buying it. And so uh, there's, there's a lot of research going on, uh, both from the, from the uh, financial perspective as well as from um, organizations that are trying to figure out what happens with decisions. Decision making involves the coordinated uh, interaction of many brain areas, uh, even for a simple game of, we would call it checkers here, a chance. Uh, the article starts with uh, who hasn't agonized over a major decision in life, whether to accept a job offer, uh, move house, or perhaps switch research fields. We're confronted with a multitude of decisions on a daily basis. Many decisions are trivial and can be dealt with in seconds. However, others may have wider ramifications and can be excruciatingly complicated. In the past few years, our understanding of the underlying processes of decision-making has progressed markedly. In this particular article, uh, the research continues to explain that um, recent experimental studies have, that provide new insights into the function and connectivity of interior prefrontal cortex, which forms the apex of the ex executive system underlying the decision-making. Uh, what he states is that human beings are highly social animals, and uh, many of our decisions make sense only within a social environment. That's true, isn't it? Um, it is among the strongest evidence to date for a systemic uh, organization of the frontal cortex. Uh, this is Brader said in the article. The frontal cortex of, of the brain has been long known to affect internal control of behavior. It controls the capacity to plan, to reason, to conduct uh, higher level thinking and connect what we know about the world um, and uh, how to we behave in it. Recent imagery um, in a study made uh, to determine when people have uh, brain damage, what happens to them, and how uh, it impacts your ability to make decisions. Uh, they just did basic tests of just pressing with one finger and then having to press with the inner finger and then more complex uh, pressing. Uh, showed that uh, the, uh, the blue, for example, you have the red and the blue, uh, which required an index finger push. Blue would trigger the middle uh, finger. The text would then become more difficult by adding more alternate finger pressing. And what they discovered is simply this, that people who have brain damage have more difficulty in making decisions because we know that just simply by observation. Uh, many times we can see that by observation, but it was interesting to note that they actually have done research where they can track uh, what part of the brain actually uh, interacts uh, or is activated when it comes to making some decisions, whether it be a simple decision or a complex one, and, and what it takes to make that decision. The findings detailed uh, in March 1 in the journal Nature uh, Neuroscience represents a huge leap in comprehending how the brain supports high-level uh, cognition and intelligent behavior. It could lead to advances in everything from treatment of strokes to understanding how humans develop thought. It is among the strongest evidence today for systemic organization of the frontal cortex, Brader said. Uh, as we continue, it says the frontal cortex of the brain has been long known to affect the internal control of behavior. It controls the capacity to plan, to reason, to conduct higher level thinking and connect what we know about the world we, uh, and how it behaves. You know, what's interesting is when Dr. Uh, Natalie was speaking the other night, how many of you were present at that presentation? Um, 
the study that he was referring to to begin with, I, I had been looking at uh, when I was con contemplating and making this presentation. Uh, I'm glad I didn't include it because it would have been redundant. But uh, it's interesting that um, a lot of the things that are being said by science today are actually uh, found in the spirit of prophecy, as you uh, just saw uh, with Dr. Uh, the doctor presenting the presentation this morning. Uh, Cognitive control involves choosing from among a, a set of actions or representations in order to achieve a certain goal or outcome. We use cognitive control to, to carry out a variety of tasks. Uh, for example, making a cup of coffee and remembering where the house keys are. The frontal lobes broadly support cognitive control. Regions within the frontal lobe guide action selections so that we add coffee grounds before we turn on the coffee maker. Or in the regions within the frontal lobe also uh, guide the memory retrieval so that we can still search for our keys even though we may have a limited uh, cues as to where the key may be. I mean, if you have lost a key and had no, no clue where you lost it or where you left it, uh, you know what helps me is just simply to pray. How many of you have prayed and, uh, and you found the, the thing? <laughs> Uh, just amazing how the Lord leads you to it, and uh, it, it's 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 very very uh, uh, awe uh, striking for me to know that God is interested even in in the decision to number one look for the thing you lost, and number two uh, how He can pinpoint uh, where it's where it is. Uh, I've had many experiences like that. Lately, I think I'm I'm losing more things than I used to. I don't know how it is with you. Anyway, uh, some of the imaging that, that has been done to determine where the brain is firing, when the decisions are made, uh, the rostral uh, cingulate zone, uh, the new study suggests that two areas in the medial, uh, medial frontal cortex contribute specifically to these de decision-making processes. A posterior region, the so-called rostral uh, cingulate zone, is engaged when conditions present most choice options. An interior region, the so-called Broadman Area 10, is engaged when the choice is completely ours, as well as when it is completely up to others to choose for us. Ultimately, they demonstrate that uh, who is doing the deciding matters just as much as whether we have any options uh, with the choice. So what it's telling us is that, obviously, uh, the, the mind or the brain has to go through a process to, to decipher uh, what part is going to engage in whatever decision we're making because uh, some have to do with our own deciding and some have to do with others deciding for us. For example, when I go to see a doctor, I don't have a lot of choices as to um, what I do when I first get in there. Is that true? Uh, stand on the scale, right? Uh, which arm do you want the blood pressure to be taken on? Um, Open your mouth when they stick something in there, right? Take the blood, the uh, temperature. Uh, go into this room. Uh, take everything off except for your underclothing, etc. Uh, sit down, and the doctor will be back uh, to see you. I mean, all of these decisions are being made for us, correct? Is that true? So, normally speaking, you as physicians and uh, practitioners are actually already in the in the mode of telling people what to do. <laughs> and what's interesting about it is that they do it. I mean, outside of, the, of, of a of doctor's office, if somebody came up to you and said, take off your clothing, uh, how many of you would do that? But you go into a doctor's office, he says, take off your clothing, you don't ask why, you just uh, obey. Isn't that true? Okay, so decision-making is something that we're involved in all the time. It was amazing is how the brain functions in that decision-making process. Uh, the the uh, imaging results are, not, uh, are noteworthy in that they reveal specific contributions of the anterior frontal medium cortex and the rostral cingulate zone in the decision-making process. Uh, the RCZ is engaged when conditions clearly present us with the most choice options. B10 is engaged in particular when the choice is completely ours. Uh, now, 
The option to choose between several courses of action is often associated with the feeling of being in control. Uh, so feelings have something to, to do with the decisions, correct? Uh, it's interesting also, I've discovered that from the scientific perspective, most of us choose first by how we feel and then uh, make the choice rather than choose and then feeling, uh, as we'll see through this. It says, uh, yet in certain situations, one may prefer to decline such agency and instead leave the choice to others. In the present functional magnetic resonance imaging study, we provide evidence that the neural processes involved in decision-making are modulated not only by who controls our choice options, the agency, but also by whether we have a say in who is in control. Here you have a, a chart of uh, the, the, uh, the interconnection that there is and the um, the process that goes on. I'm going to speed on because I'm going to get into the spiritual in just a moment, but the ability to make decisions when they are needed depends on whether your brain connections are the, uh, the neural equivalent of what? Broadband, Broadband or? Now that's, that's a new concept, isn't it? An international study shows decision-making is dependent on the structural features of the what? The brain. Quick decisions tend to be error-prone, while relatively slower contemplation tends to produce more accuracy. The trade-off between speed and accuracy means people need to be able to switch between the fast, risky, and slower cautious modes of decision-making as required. The mind, obviously, then, um, has the ability to process things uh, fast, and if the brain is not what it should be, then it still processes things, but much slower. And uh, when he says broadband or dial-up, of course, some of us are old enough to remember the dial-up uh, process. How many of you remember the first computer that, uh, what was it? Uh, I think it was a 64K uh, tape-run computer. I remember I bought one of those as opposed to today when we have a high speed. How many of you get frustrated when you go to a foreign country and you don't have high speed and uh, you're waiting there for things to transmit or they don't transmit at all? Uh, well, what it's telling us is that as they, as they studied the brain and they studied the mind uh, in this whole decision-making process, that they, they saw that, uh, that how, how the brain is uh, either deteriorating uh, by means of age for example, the older you get, the slower you get. You've heard that, correct? Uh, the, ability, the, the reality is that uh, what's happening is that trans the, the processes for transmitting uh, the communication back and forth is narrowing. And because they're narrowing, your ability to make decisions gets slower and slower and slower. Now, here's a, a shot of the uh, neurons and Brown says that little is known about the, neurolog the uh, neurology underpinning this flexibility. But in their study, Brown and the colleagues, which included researchers from UK, Germany, and the Netherlands, examined what brain mechanisms underpinning decision-making flexibility. They found it was determined by the what? Purely what? Physical measurement of the thickness of the connection between the brain's cortex and the, uh, of the basal ganglia. So they're discovering then that uh, something happens to the brain, get the connections get, get uh, thinner and thinner and thinner, and uh, therefore the process gets slower and slower and slower. It's like uh, taking a tube that's big and shooting a lot of water through it, as opposed to taking a, a small tube and trying to shoot the same amount of water through it. Uh, things slow down or bog down, okay? He says the results are the equivalent of brain communication being uh, reliant on a broadband connection or still using dial-up. The underlying finding that a purely physical measurement could predict behavior is very surprising. Now, in my mind, I'm already thinking of many statements that are said are made by Mrs. White concerning uh, how our lifestyle affects our minds. Uh, I don't know how many of you have studied that, how many of you have seen statements concerning that, uh, but it's very interesting that even the, even the, the scientists are now saying 
that um, alcohol drinking, for example, wine, etc., um, where some scientists are saying it's great, drink all the alcohol you want. Other scientists are saying that it actually does uh, contribute uh, and makes an impact on the narrowing of your, your system so that you cannot process as well as you'd like to. Medical professionals are making decisions for one or helping patients uh, make decisions on a daily basis. Uh, and of course, as I mentioned already, fill the form, have a sit, uh, have a, uh, pardon me, that should be SEAT, until you're called, uh, come this way, please, uh, step on the scale, let's go on to this room, take off everything except you need to go to the x-ray, take these twice a day, uh, your appointment is whatever it is, okay? So we see the, the, the scientifically speaking, they recognize that there are a lot of uh, interplay between uh, one region of the mind and the other region of the mind, making some decisions or making other decisions. But what about the spiritual uh, climate when we, when we talk about decision making? Uh, first of all, uh, the electrical impulses. Uh, when I studied the School of Public Health many years ago, back in 19, uh, when Dr. Baldwin was there, what was that, 1971? Um, I remember hearing for the first time about electrical impulses. But in those days, I was not very interested in, in what was taking place there. But as I've read some of these statements recently, um, and uh, looked at some of the research being done. Another it says the circuit in question is located in the region of the brain called the orbital frontal cortex, located right behind the eyes. It, it, it encodes the visual and other cues that people and animals use when making decisions about behavior or during the learning process. If you're hearing a rooster crowing, how many of you are hearing that? That's my alarm clock. <laughs> They're telling me to wake up at 5.30 in the morning back in Guam, so, all right. <laughs> all right, now, it encodes a visual and other cues that people and animals use when making decisions about behavior during the learning process. Um, here's a chart of the, the interaction that there is between the thalamus and the orbital frontal cortex, the prefrontal cortex, and uh, uh, then the, the statements that, that uh, give us some insight into this, the brain nerves which communicate with the entire uh, system are the only what? Meaning through which what? Heaven can communicate to man. Interesting, right? And affects his what? In most life. Whatever disturbs the circulation of the electrical currents in the nervous system lessens the strength of the vital powers, and the result is the deadening of the sensibilities of the mind. Of course, when it's, when it's referring to the mind, it's, of course, referring to where? Basically, the frontal lobe, okay? Um, physical inaction lessens not only mental, but what? Moral power. The brain nerves that connect with the whole system are the medium to which heaven communicates with man and affects the most life. Whatever hinders the circulation of electrical currents in the nervous system, thus weakening the vital powers and lessening mental susceptibility, makes it more difficult to arouse the moral nature. Now, these two statements are similar, but I, uh, they're different in that one has to do with the moral nature. Uh, the other one has to do with just the making the decisions and the inability to make decisions based upon what we do to that area. Um, the medical side, the light, sound, and odors, for example, are transformed by our sensory organs into a code made of series of what? Electrical impulses that travel along uh, neurons from the body to the brain. Information about the onset and the intensity of a stimulus is thought to be sent to the brain by the timing and frequency of these electrical impulses. How information is sorted by the brain has been an open question. The group discovered that different neurons in the brain are, dictated, are dedicated to respond to a specific portion of the information. Uh, what, what they're saying is that uh, there are different neurons uh, in, the, in the brain that pick up certain signals, just like an orchestra. Uh, in an orchestra, you have uh, uh, the violin section, for example, might play certain notes. They don't play all the notes of the orchestra. Uh, the oboe may play certain notes. Uh, the timpani may play certain notes. Everybody's playing notes at different times. Not everybody's playing the same note. 
And what they're telling us is that there are different neurons that have the ability to detect what signal they should pick up and how to transform and translate that signal. Which to me is amazing because uh, when you think about how God has made the organism, uh, no wonder David said, fearfully and wonderfully are we made, correct? Uh, when, you, when you realize that these little microscopic neurons have the ability to be like musicians that are able to play whatever note they're supposed to play and don't play any other note. They're simply dedicated to a certain process. Now, uh, Michael McElhenney explained why the expression, the fact of the matter, is actually more elusive than we once thought. The functional MRI and the anatomical research has eradicated the myth of rationality. The prefrontal part of the brain is a slow processor compared to the... Uh, amygdala. To what? Amygdala. amygdala, which is the center of emotional reactors. We feel before we think. So it is important to recognize the decisions involve emotional associations first because our emotional wiring is a faster processor in the brain, emotions are often the lead data in analysis. Emotions taint every decision. It is simply a matter of degree and awareness. While purely logical and objective analysis is possible, it is extremely difficult and is best accomplished by groups because groups have a better capacity to tease uh, out emotional aspects of the argument. As you know, I've written a book called Gaining Decisions for Christ. How many of you have seen that book? Okay. Uh, the reason I wrote that book is because I've discovered that a lot of uh, preachers uh, either don't realize, don't know, don't think they should uh, make decisions. Do you have one of those? By the way, this is Madeline uh, Hironushi. Her husband happens to be a physician there at the uh, Guam SCA clinic. And she is our, our recruiter for Guam Aquanation Mission. So please uh, see her, those OBGYNs that are with us. <laughs> of course, we're not, we're not partial to any of you physicians that want to come. But this is the book, thank you, Madeline. This is the book called Gaining Decisions for Christ. And I, and I, I did, did found out also that there are a lot of, a lot of lay people, uh, practitioners, um, educators, that just don't think that it's their role to get decisions. There are a lot of misconceptions when it comes to this area, and I would like to be able to deal with those misconceptions in the next section. But right now, let's continue on this whole uh, matter of, of decision-making uh, and, and how we can help patients make decisions in, in a spiritual line. So crossing the bridge from the social to the spiritual, let's consider uh, several things. First of all, it says the unnatural exhilaration which intemperance gives to the mind and spirits lowers the sensibilities of the what? To more improvement. Making it what? For what? Holy impulses to affect the heart and hold government over the passions. When public opinion and fashion sustain them, Festivities and amusements, dances and free use of wine, becloud the senses and remove the fear of what? Of God. That's temperance, page 50. Um, when we are considering the, dealing with people all the time, as I said, most of the time we are telling people what decisions to make concerning medical things. Uh, I should also tell you, I used to be a medic in the Army, and I spent uh, two years as a medic uh, during the Vietnam War. And one of the things that uh, I had to do in those days is tell soldiers what to do. I, know, I knew they didn't like that, but nonetheless, we uh, took that uh, prerogative. But when you're dealing with people in the spiritual uh, realm, Leading a person to make a decision in favor of the gospel involves several considerations. One of the most important is a person's personal experience. How many of you are acquainted with the word FORT, the acronym F-O-R-T? F-O-R-T, are you acquainted with that? Okay, uh, simply means family, occupation, religion, testimony. Are you acquainted with that? Yes, how many of you are not? 
Can I see your hand? All right. So let me talk to the majority of you then. One of the things that I discovered when I, uh, when I was in the Army as a medic and I wanted to help somebody turn to spiritual things, uh, or as a pastor, as an evangelist, uh, in leading people to make decisions, is that it's very difficult to help a person make a decision unless you, unless you know something about them. And so getting close to the individual is very important, and you as practitioners have an excellent opportunity to get close to people. In fact, you, you get a lot of information from people that otherwise the common person would not get. Uh, you know a whole lot about people's backgrounds and history because you have to know whether or not mom and dad had uh, um, heart problems or whether or not mom and dad had asthma, whether or not mom and dad or uncle, sister or whatever had this kind of problem. So you get a lot of personal information, private information all the time. Uh, what you don't get many times is uh, spiritual information. And so what I do when I'm dealing with somebody is I sit on a plane with somebody. For example, I was on a plane recently where uh, there were two ladies. I was sitting right in the middle of two ladies, and I was praying which one I should witness to first. And so I turned to the right one, and it turned out she had a book called Ministry of Healing. And so I knew she was not the one. <laughs> turned out she was an Adventist working at the North American Division office. You know. so. I said, hi and bye. So I turned to the one on my left, and uh, the, the fort, the F-O-R-T, family, occupation, religion, testimony. And I, I first asked the question, um, are you on vacation, holiday, or are you uh, on business? She said, I'm on business. We were traveling from New York City to California. So I said, what kind of business? She said, I'm a scientist. I said, what area? She said, I'm in charge of all the apparatus at the point of space to see if there's life out there. I said, you guys are too late. Honestly, that's what I said. Too late. Yeah, I said, you guys are too late. She said, what do you mean? I wanted to push the button to see how she would react. You see. She said, what do you mean? I said, we already know there's life out there. She said, how do you know that? <laughs> and I said, because the Bible says it. She said, where? So I took out my Bible and I showed her Job chapter 1. And I said, you guys are uh, trying to build a space and city, right? She said, yeah. I said, you are too late again. <laughs> and I said, we have a Bible says there's a city in space. She said, where is that? I turned to Revelation chapter 21. She read it. And I said, and, the, and you guys, uh, it wasn't long ago that you discovered uh, transparent gold, right? She said, yeah. I said, you guys are too late again. So look at verse 18 and 21. And the Bible says that the streets are made of what? Transparent gold, see? And she said, this is amazing. <laughs> By the way, she was a non-believer. And then she said, can I tell you something? I said, yeah. She said, uh, my brother became one of these born-again things. <laughs> she said. And she said, uh, he, uh, he invited me to church, and I reluctantly went, but I, when I got there, the pastor sat us in a circle, put Bibles in our laps, and turned to something about some bones, you know what I'm, Ezekiel's vision, and turned to some bones and said, uh, read it and give us your impressions. A and she said, I, I couldn't believe it. This guy wanted us, he acted like a shrink, wanted us to give him our impressions, you know. And she said, if that's all that the Bible has to offer, who needs it? And I said, well, I said, so far, what have you seen? She said, it's a scientific book. And I said, by the way, I'm a vegetarian. She said, don't tell me you got that from the Bible. I said, yeah, Genesis 1.29. <laughs> and uh, I said, then I told her the first irrigation system was in the Bible. She said, where is that? Well, you know, uh, there's a mist that comes out of the ground and waters the whole face of the earth. I said, the first surgery and anesthesia is recorded in the Bible. God put Adam into a deep sleep and open up the side thereof and pull out a bone and close it back up. We call that surgery today, don't we? And we call that anesthesia, deep sleep. Isn't that what you do when you put, get surgery to somebody? Any anesthesiologists here with us? None. One, okay. Isn't that what you do? Yeah. And so uh, God puts Adam into a deep sleep, opens up the side, pulls out a bone, and closes that up. I said, you know, 200 years ago, they would, have, they would have said this is a fairy tale. Whoever heard of somebody opening up the side and surviving? 
but now we know it's just common knowledge. I mean, I have two cousins who are organ transplant surgeons. And I asked John, I said, how difficult it is. He said, it's a very simple thing. You pull out the, the kidney and put another one in. You know? So uh, this, this lady was just amazed. She said, uh, she said look, uh, I think it's providential. Interesting, right? I think it was what she says? Providential. All of a sudden, she turned to a religious or spiritual uh, tone. She said, when I get home, one of the first things I'm going to do is buy a Bible. Okay. So, uh, now, I'm asking her questions. And by the way, I, I termed this diagnostic questions. What did I turn it? Diagnostic questions. I'm asking her questions. Number one, I find out she is a scientist. That's her job, right? Occupation, right? I find out that uh, she, her background, her religious background is, is uh, a-religious. She's not religious at all. I found out that she has a brother who is a born-again thing, right? Uh, so I know her work. I know some of her family background. I know her religious perspective, correct? You understand what I'm saying? And then I shared my testimony. My testimony was about a scientific perspective of the Bible. And I said, before, I was an evolutionist. But when I began to study the Bible, I discovered that the Bible has so much to offer to us who are scientists. And so she was excited. And uh, it's just amazing, right? But Fort, F-O-R-T. Now, you don't have to necessarily use it in that order. You understand what I'm saying? But if you remember the acronym, then you can just ask the questions and uh, deal with the person as you are able to. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, uh, I think that's the acronym that should show up right there. Okay? F-O-R-T. Now, uh, there are people, generally speaking, in three categories. How many? Three, three categories. Repeat that for me. How many? Three, three categories. Okay. The so, that is uh, the cultivate and the harvest. Now, the reason I do this is because... Uh, in, in, in the medical practice, when a patient comes into you, one of the first things you need to do is to try to find out the basics. The what? Basics. The basics. You've got to find out if these people just have a common cold, right? Or they're acute. They have some real physical problems or some, some uh, viral infection or some uh, parasite or whatever, whatever the case may be, right? So... In the spiritual context, then, I try to figure out ways to categorize him because I want to be able to, to give this person the appropriate medicine. If you don't do that, you have a tendency to approach everybody in the same way. And you know in medicine you can't do that. Is that true? All right. So, number one, the so. Those who have never heard, they need the, the seed sown. And the seed, by the way, is the word of God. Number two, those who have heard but need to be nurtured. There are people who already have spiritual inclinations. Uh, and so, with that lady who was a scientist, I wanted to sow. I wanted to what? Sow. Because as I asked questions, I found out that she was in what category? She was in the sow category. Okay? So, my, my intention then was to plant the seed. To do what? Plant the seed. Okay? Then, if I find somebody who is, who is already religiously inclined... And then I, for example, on the plane here from uh, Los Angeles, I flew uh, into Los Angeles from Los Angeles down here. There were two ladies in the plane. The one that sat next to me is with a group called Suffix. And I said, what is that? Uh, and it's a new movement of trying to put the Koran, the Bible, and all the holy books, the Torah, and all the holy books together to unite all the world into one religion. Did you know that? And right now, while we're meeting here, they're meeting someplace here in San Diego at a convention. So I, uh, I said, I asked her, began talking with her, you know, the same thing, Fort, you understand? And, uh, and I said, uh, I happen to be a Seventh-day Adventist minister. Oh! <laughs> After I found out she, you know, she was religious and all that, she said, oh, so I have a holy man sitting next to me. And... As we talked, uh, it was obvious that she, they're misguided. But uh, I, I, I could talk to her spiritually. I go, what? Talk to her spiritually. It turned out that their headquarters, believe it or not, is in Pope Valley, just over the, the side of Anglin, California. 
And they go to Angwin all the time to buy their food. So the leaders of this organization that are trying to unite the world under one religion are pretty close to one of our uh, Meccas. Okay. So anyway, with her, I dealt with more spiritual things because she was obviously what? Already spiritual. The last one is harvest. Those who know enough but have never made a decision. Right now, we're teaching a class with a mission college class, by the way, it's in Guam, as I said. And uh, I've discovered so far that several of the people who've come to be trained are not even Seventh-day Adventists. And I discovered that simply because as I'm teaching, my purpose is to convert. To what? Convert. To convert. Because I feel that a lot of young people who grow up as Adventists still need to be converted. Yeah. What do you say? Yeah. And so my purpose is to convert. And uh, before I left on, I, uh, left on, on uh, Thursday, but on Wednesday I taught a class, and one of the kids came up to me and said, uh, I want to be baptized. I said, you do? I said, you've been baptized already? No, he said, I've never been baptized. So you've never been baptized? He said, no, I've never been baptized. Then another girl said, I haven't been baptized either. So it turns out that there are several, several of those people that I'm training who aren't Adventists. <laughs> and who by the time we finish training, they shall be baptized. So these people are in the harvest category. Which category? Harvest. In the harvest category, okay? So with them then, I, I uh, take a streamline to helping them get prepared for their commitment to Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? So being able to categorize helps me to be able to determine what approach to take with who I'm working with. So as you're working with people in your, in your, in your uh, practices, uh, just simple questions uh, can help you to determine whether or not these people have a spiritual inclination or not, or whether or not they have a, a background. Uh, just the thought. For example, when I deal with checking out what religion they are, I, I usually ask questions like, uh, so did you grow up going to church? That's a very generic uh, question. Uh, and they'll tell me, for example, this lady, I said, well, have you always been involved in this? She said, no, uh, I grew up as a Roman Catholic. I said, you grew up as a Roman Catholic and now you're part of this? She said, uh, yes. And I said, well, from your group, uh, what's the background? She said, many of us are Roman Catholics and this and that, etc." So, so she said, I used to live in New York City. Oh, you used to live in New York City. I grew up in New York, so testimony, okay? I grew up in New York. Oh, really? Yeah. And, uh, then uh, she said, well, I haven't always lived in New York. I only lived in New York for two years. I said, where did you live there before? She said, in Philadelphia. You lived in Philadelphia. Well, I used to live in Wilmington, Delaware. Well, that's close to Philadelphia, see. So what am I doing? I'm asking questions and bonding. And what? Bonding. bonding. Trying to find something that can bond with them so that I can gain their confidence. I can what? Gain their confidence. Once I can gain their confidence, it makes it a lot easier for me to actually uh, deal with them and share my testimony and uh, lead them in the particular uh, area that they need to be led. If, if I ask questions, find out they're atheists, then I'm going to be a little bit different in my approach with them. If I find out they're Christian, I'm going to be a different approach. If I find out that I'm sitting next to somebody who grew up in an Adventist church and who left the church and who, uh, you know, then I'm going to go for the juggler. You understand? <laughs> Are you hearing what I'm saying? So determine what, depending on what a person is, will determine uh, which, which I, I go. But one of the important things in the whole process is, you remember we read the statement that heaven uh, actually communicates with us through what? Through the, through the electrical what? Impulses. Impulses of the mind, okay? Having said that, then we know that it's the Holy Spirit, the one who actually does that communicating. Now, friends, I don't know how, it, how it's done. And I, I don't, you know, there's no, no research uh, that can demonstrate how it is that the Spirit of God somehow uh, puts a probe in there and triggers something. You know, I don't know how that goes. I just know this, that in order for us to be effective soul winners in our practices, whatever it is, whether you're a teacher, etc., uh, it's important to be connected to the Spirit of God. Okay? So, when the Spirit of the Lord is with you, then He guides you and gives you indicators as to which way to go and what to do. And many times you may, you may do things that are not what would be the kosher thing to do. You know what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? 
Uh, and I can tell you that I, I've been in situations where I've done things with not the, the kosher thing to do, but it was just the right thing for that person. Uh, I remember Dick Barron. How many of you ever heard of Dick Barron? I'm talking about the black guy. He's, he's about six feet something. Uh, he, he, he used to work at the General Conference, excellent speaker. Big, big, tall guy. So big that he used to come and stay at my house. His feet would hang over the bed, the edge of the bed. Anyway, Dig was going down San Francisco. Somebody was driving him one day, and he was impressed to, there was a, a gentleman walking down the sidewalk, and he was impressed to talk to that guy. So he told the, the driver, stop the car. I need to talk to that guy. He said, you know him? I've never seen him before in my life. So what do you want to talk to him? I just, I'm impressed I need to talk to him. Stop the car. He said, but you never, just stop the car, let me talk to him. So, uh, and I'm talking about this guy was about six feet five, you understand? Yeah, big guy. And so he, uh, he comes and stands in the, in the corner of the street as this guy's walking down. And he's standing like this. And the gentleman, as, as he's approaching uh, Dick, uh, he sees this big black individual standing in the middle of the way, like this, and uh, looks down the sidewalk and, and goes this way. Well, Dick just simply just moved. And the guy uh, turned the other way, and Dick just simply moved. And finally, the guy got upset and uh, said to Dick, man, what are you up to? Get out of my way. And Dick said, the Lord told me to come and talk to you. And the guy said, you sound like one of those Seventh-day Adventist preachers. <laughs> and Dick said, I am. <laughs> you know, it turned out that this guy had, was backslidden had left the church a long time ago, and right there at the, at the corner, he gave his heart back to the Lord. I mean, what choice do you have when you meet the prophet who meets you right at the corner, right? You understand what I'm saying? Uh, all right. The Spirit of God. Notice, notice what Paul says. He said, the Bible says uh, that Paul said to this man, stand up, right? And the man stood up and leaped and walked, right? Now, what made Paul do that? It says he perceived. He what? Perceived, perceived that the guy had what? Faith. Faith to be healed. So Paul perceived, which means then that Paul was connected to the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God enabled him to see something in this person that perhaps other people hadn't seen. And by the way, this is important because as you talk to people, you have to, you have to sense whether or not these people have faith. Whether or not what? Faith. These people have faith. Paul perceived... Uh, and he was, because of his perception that the fellow had enough faith, he told him to stand up. If Paul had sensed that this guy did not have enough faith, would Paul have told him to stand up? Hmm? No. Jesus had that ability also. Oh, you have a little faith, and so forth, as he would say. Okay, now, I'm just going to give you a quick list here of the, the different uh, uh, aspects of the Holy Spirit. If you want to write them down, you need to write fast. Uh, or I can just give you a flash drive later on. If you give me a flash drive, I'll give it to you, okay? Is that all right? But uh, there's, a, there's some controversy about the Holy Spirit today, but I just want you to know that the Bible's clear. The what? The Bible's clear. Uh, this is just uh, one list. Here's another list, and here's another list, okay? So, anyway, I'll give that to you in a flash drive. Huh? The rest is, those texts are not in my book. I just put them together recently because of the controversy that I've met in Australia. Okay. All right. Now, here's something that's important for us to understand in this whole thing of the, the uh, Holy Spirit interacting with the electrical impulses of the mind. When Jesus met Nicodemus, Nicodemus was told, you must be born again. Do you remember that? And his reaction to that was a medical response, right? Is that correct? Uh, does that mean that you have to go back to your mother's womb and come back out again? Uh, Jesus simply just told them that except you're born again, you cannot see. The first thing you cannot what? See. see may, some of us may not realize that, but it says, except you be born again, he cannot see. see. So in order for you to see the kingdom of God, first you must be born again. Okay. Mm. Now, there must be a spiritual eyesight that awakens. Okay. Number two then, uh, Jesus then said again to him, uh, except the man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So first, the person must be born again, then he must be baptized. Is that clear? You see that? All right. 
Now, Nicodemus did not understand what Jesus was talking about. Uh, Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus did not understand. So then Jesus simply said the following in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 8. It says, the wind bloweth where it what? Where it lifteth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. So Jesus then shifted from the spiritual to, the, to nature. Okay, he could not understand the spiritual thing, but he could probably understand nature. And he simply said, the, the Spirit of God is like the wind. It's like what? The wind. the wind. And the wind blows where it wants to, right? Yes? Yes. All right. And you can't see it. Yeah, you can't see it, all right? But you can sense that it's blowing simply because of how it moves things, all right? So, the wind is the Holy Spirit, and of course, man is represented in the Bible as a tree. As a what? As a tree, okay? So, a simple, simple uh, uh, equation. If the tree moves, the wind is what? Blowing. Look outside there, out the window. Do you see anything moving? <coughs> huh? If there's something moving, what does that tell you? With a blowing. If there was nothing moving, what's that? One minute. If there's nothing moving, then what? And no wind. Okay. So, the important thing about this is this. When you're dealing with people, one of the important things is to look at the indicators. You know, in the medical practice, you're always looking at indicators, correct? Yes? You look at the face, you see if it's flush, etc. You check the... the, the uh, the temperature, uh, you check whether to see if it's moist or dry, etc. the skin, etc., etc. So, indicators. The same thing is true when you're dealing with the spiritual ramifications. When are you dealing with, with the mind? You cannot see what's happening in the mind, but you can see what's happening in the mind by the body language. By the what? Body. By, the la by the language. So, it's important for us then to recognize that when you're working with a patient and you're asking them spiritual questions, the Bible says that Jesus watched. He what? He watched. And the reason why he was watching is to see the responses of people to the Word. To the what? To the Word. So, as you're working with patients and you begin to ask spiritual questions, you watch. You what? You watch. And the reason why you're watching is to see if the wind blows. Okay? Now, I'm going to have to stop here, but in the next class, we'll continue. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.